What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today, we had a wonderful conversation with Malia Khan. She is a therapist based out of Houston. Let me pull up her information real quick and then reading it off. Okay, here we go. So um, this is a great conversation. It's something that I wanted to do for a while. It was about Muslim mental health, fasting, Ramadan, all that stuff. So a little introduction about Malia Malia Khan is a licensed therapist from Houston, Texas. She has private practice and also works at the Menninger Clinic, where she completed her training. She has led clinical research studies at MD Anderson Cancer Center and Rice University in the field of psychoneuroimmunology, which focused on how relationship and psychosocial stressors impact immune function. As a therapist, she specializes in anxiety, depression, personality disorders, and trauma. She's Pakistani-American and is passionate about spreading awareness about mental health in the South Asian and Muslim communities. She has been featured in Psychology Today, Real Simple Magazine, and Brown Girl Magazine, as well as news channels and radio shows. She has authored Mindfulness Meditations for the Subber app, which is the first meditation app for Muslims. She has also worked with various Muslim organizations, including Dara Sakina and Anissa. She continues to promote mental health awareness on her social media platforms, such as Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Her purpose is to create a safe space for Desis and Muslims to unlearn disruptive patterns and create healthier patterns, healthier ways of living, sorry, so they can build more fulfilling lives for themselves, their families, and future generations. So buckle up. We had a great conversation. We're going to learn a lot. So, um, and just kind of a disclaimer we put in there, again, neither of us are Islamic scholars, so we're trying to do this to the best of our abilities. And if there's anything that we said wrong, please forgive us. Thank you. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. Um, we have a great episode, great conversation, great guest on cue for today. Um, this is somebody and a topic I think that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. And right now we're in the middle kind of the middle of Ramadan. We're hoping to have this a little bit beforehand, but you know, stuff comes up. So we're trying to get it out sooner rather than later. But this is um, Malia Khan. I'll let her introduce herself and then we'll kind of jump on into the conversation. I'm so glad to be here. I'm excited to talk about this topic. Um, a little bit about myself. I'm a therapist in Houston, Texas. Um, and I started my training at the Medicare Clinic. Um, that's currently where I work, um, but I also have a private practice. Um, I'm really passionate about spreading awareness regarding mental health when it comes to the Muslim community and um, South Asian community uh, because I feel like there's a uh, you know quite lack of information out there and uh, people there's a lot of misinformation out there actually. So my my goal through my work is to really um, break that apart and help people have appropriate knowledge from a reputable source um, so that they can learn healthy ways to function, not only for themselves, but their families. Yeah, so I, I came across your page, like on Instagram, and I was like, I want to talk about, you know, Ramadan and mental health concerns for Muslims as we get into it, because I'm sure you do as well. You get a lot of questions from people who are Muslims and, and maybe non-Muslims, right? A lot of non-Muslims, there's a lot of curiosity about there, about like, what's Ramadan and how do we deal with it and are these things okay and you know I'm sure you growing up like I I kind of did like this thing a couple years ago with a lot of like the memes about like 
the, the stupid Ramadan questions, <laughs> right? Uh, or the, the common kind of questions that you get. So I was like, let's <laughs> let's kind of jump into that. Let's start with there. Like, what is Ramadan as a whole? Like, is it just not eating and not drinking? And like, can you have water? And what are some common kind of misconceptions that are out there? It's funny that you bring that up uh, about the questions because the uh, literally the other day someone said not even water, yeah. um, you know that's one of the most famous ones. Not even water. Wait, not even water. Yep. Wait, sun up to sun down, and you know um, yeah, there's there's quite a few within um, you know the non-Muslim community, but also I think even within the Muslim community, we might focus so heavily on the food and drink part when Ramadan is so much more than that. Um, you know, Ramadan is about being able to fight with our nafs, being able to manage what our nafs comes up with. And our nafs is that very human part of us that calls us towards things that might be harmful for us or things that might be sinful. So things like uh, lying, backbiting, um, you know, yelling at people, swearing, uh, those are all things that we're generally discouraged from in our faith. But especially in Ramadan, that's something that um, we are encouraged to be mindful of. And then Ramadan is also about adding good deeds. So giving in charity, um, doing more zikr, um, you know, going to tarawih, um, being kind to other people, volunteering, um, and also reading the Quran because Ramadan is the month of the Quran. It's the month when the Quran is revealed, and you know, being introspective, being reflective on the Quran and ourselves is something we're very much encouraged to do. But we tend to, even as Muslims, we tend to just focus on the food and drink part heavily, and I think it's because that's such a big shift that's kind of the biggest shift that happens in our daily life when it comes to Ramadan that we're giving up food and drink so naturally people focus on that part and you know make the other parts of Ramadan kind of minimized in a way yeah and I think that's it's the part where it's like you can everybody can see that right they're like oh you know Salman's not going out for lunch anymore he's not you know, getting, he's not running to the water fountain all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the stuff that people can see. And the other stuff is the harder to see stuff, right? It's the the internal kind of struggle, internal kind of changes, the things that we do, so. Totally, totally. And there's, you know, even the community piece, um, we are usually spending iftars with our family. We're having like a sitting down together, having a meal together. So again, even, you know, within our homes, there's such a heavy emphasis on that. Oh, we're going to have iftar. What are we gonna eat for support? So, uh, I think those things reinforce that concept quite a lot. Yeah. So yeah, and I think that's like for people who are on the outside, it's like there is that aspect where right, we're not eating, drinking, but we're really trying to make those big changes, right? Those internal changes, so that we can be better human beings and better all that stuff. So awesome, awesome. I was gonna say also like before we kind of like get deeper, deeper into this, like I'm not by any means like a religious scholar or expert i'm not authority on anything um so we're, we're trying to speak from the best that we're our own kind of research and stuff so if we say anything you know please you know check with your imams and everybody else and god knows best kind of thing right totally totally yeah i think that's uh it's important to say that and start off with that because yes neither of us are scholars <laughs> scholars right um and i know the intention really here is not to uh, offend anybody or um to harmful in any way it really is to provide um, information that could be helpful for people and it's we're always recommended to speak to your own treatment team your own therapist your own psychiatrist and your own mom um, to get clarity on your personal what you're going through personally yeah yeah so the reason one of the reasons we wanted to come bring you on here is because there's a lot of 
when when Ramadan comes, there's a lot of feelings that come from people, from people within the community, right? You talk with like my wife, friends, our community, all people, and people are like, oh, I'm so excited for Ramadan. I'm, I can't wait for it to come. Like, this is like what I look forward to every year. You know, we commonly hear, like, if we go to the mosque, that like, you know, the imams will say things like, oh, the last couple of days I start crying because I'm going to miss Ramadan so much. And like, I hear some of this stuff and I'm just like, what is going on? Right. You're like, you're like, is this how everybody is? And then, you know, sometimes, you know, I have patients who are Muslim and they'll be like, I, you know, dread it. I look, I don't look forward to it every day. Like, I mean, everyone is coming up and there's so many kind of this, this wide gamut of feelings. So in your thought, like in your experience, like, why do you think there are some people who feel they can't wait for it to come and other people have the opposite? Like, I don't want it to come. There's, there are some people that experience anxiety, nervousness about Ramadan coming, um, and then there's other people who feel so excited. So we have to talk about the emotion of nervousness or anxiety. That is a very natural um, emotion that has existed since the beginning of time. Um, you know, even in Islamic history, you look at the, the stories of the prophets, you know that they went through some really intense challenges and tests that were very overwhelming for them. And they were human beings. Uh, and they experience human emotion, like feeling overwhelmed, feeling fearful, feeling anxious. They, they experience all of that. Even if we think back to the uh, story of Prophet Muhammad, when he first received revelation and he meets Jibreel um, he, as he's talking about this experience, he is he's very overwhelmed when it happens. You know, He's talking about how he was fearful that he was going to die as Jibreel al squeezing him and talking to read. Um, and we know that when he went to his wife, he was shaking because it was so intense. It was so overwhelming for her. So I think, you know, if we just think back to that and we ask ourselves, hold on a second, how, how, how do you think, you know, he was feeling in that moment? I, I imagine that people could say that he, he may have felt uh, fear. He may have felt anxiety in that time. Um, so, and he's one of the best of the creations, right? So I, the reason I bring this up is to say that anxiety is a natural emotion and even the best of creation experiences anxiety. So we're not, we are not exempt from that. We will probably feel that way too. And, and yeah, there's many reasons people might feel anxious in Ramadan, like as a student, let's say a student has intense exams coming up, right? They're going to feel anxious about, okay, how is this going to work out? Um, with Ramadan. If I'm fasting, how am I going to have energy to be able to get through my exam? I'm sure if you think back to your time in med school, um, there were certain things that you may have had to adjust when Ramadan was coming up or even through residency, right? Um, or even being a parent to a young child, like I am. Um, I definitely had some level of anxiety when Ramadan was coming because I was thinking about how I'm going to manage having a young baby and, um, you know, fasting. This was my first Ramadan um, after becoming a mom, where I was oh, nice. fasting. Thank you. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it's my first Ramadan where I was going to be fasting in Ramadan. And it was ne- it was nerve-wracking for me in a lot of ways. And I had to do a lot of talking with myself of, okay, this is, how, this is my plan for Ramadan. This is how I'm going to manage, um, you know, having a young child. Because kids, they, they take a lot from you. Young children, they require a lot of your attention and a lot of your energy. And they're their energy tank is like up here all day long, right? Um, and they're not eating and you're frustrated. And you're like, 
gosh, please just eat this food. I'll eat it if you don't want to, but I can't eat it right now. Um, and it can be frustrating to experience that. But, but yeah, those are just some reasons why someone may experience um, Ramadan anxiety. Yeah. And, you know, I get a lot of questions about like, oh my God, can you know, like I take medications and all this stuff and, you know, like am I exempt from it? But, you know, and I think that's one of the common, <clears throat> excuse me, one of like the most common misconceptions I think like with Islam is, and any kind of religion in general too, is the niyat or what we say, like the intention of things, right? So in Islam, like niyat, this intention is like of the utmost importance. It's, it's given so much kind of like talk versus like the rigidity in absolutism that, you know, sometimes the media more portray or some more, you know, the intention is the biggest part. So talk about that a little bit, some of the aspects of like niyat and, and with Ramadan too. I think it's that aspect where, you know, like a lot of religions and a lot of kind of faiths have this, this, the guilt, right? The, the religious guilt, the, the whole concept of like Catholic guilt, you know, this common term that we hear where it's, it's not really right. You know, and if we, you know, true believers of any kind of faith, again, is this idea that, you know, the higher power is a forgiving God, a forgiving um, being, and that, you know, your intention or your heart is, is where it's at. So it's kind of this idea of like, you know, I'm intending to, you know, again, complete the prayers, complete the fast. And if it doesn't happen, God understands, right? And it's this, but, it, you know, it's kind of in the same vein of like, if we're trying to like do ill, but we do good by accident or the outcome is, you know, again, like we'll get some, we'll get some good benefits, but also there's like the aspect of like, you know, it's, it wasn't with the best intentions of where this kind of came from. So. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like what you said, this absolutism, 
usually come from a place of um, seeing Allah as this, uh, you know, angry God, right? Like, I'm doing this to avoid um, his anger or avoid his wrath. I'm doing this to avoid going to hell. Um, whereas if we have a healthy perspective, we see Allah as a merciful God. Um, and that generally helps us feel closer to him. You know, you, you brought up the idea of guilt, and, and it reminds me of um, something that Brene Brown talks about. Brene Brown is this famous researcher. She talks about shame and perfectionism and being rigid and having these like strict rules for ourselves and living life in that way. She talks a lot about how, you know, what, what shame does to us and what perfectionism does to us. So, yes, it is, guilt is a very helpful emotion. Yes, we all feel guilty, and it is necessary to, to feel that way in certain times, right? Because guilt helps us do things to make a positive change in our lives. But guilt is about what we did. So it's attached to an action or behavior. Shame, on the other hand, other hand is about who we are, right? So guilt is, I did something bad, and shame is, I am bad myself. Um, guilt holds us accountable. It gives us the space to grow and, and create positive change in our life. Shame, on the other hand, it, it makes us feel like, well, what's the point of trying? I'm good for nothing, right? Uh, so it corrodes that very part of us that takes, that gives us the motivation to create healthy change. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's important to stay steer clear of that way of operating, you know, that yeah. perfectionist or rigid way of operating. It's it's a common kind of like concept, right? That we see, you know, in the mental health field, the concept of like you know, trying to avoid this black and white thinking and trying to have embraced kind of the world as gray and that there's nuance in the world and a similar kind of a application to faith, religion, and lifestyles or beliefs. So what are, you know, we, again, we, we kind of joked about like the not even water cons, you know, questions that we get, but what are some reasons, some exemptions about or contraindications for fasting? What are some reasons that people are allowed to not fast? Um, I think we, we know of the common ones. If you're traveling, you are exempt from fasting. Someone who might be pregnant, a woman who's pregnant, or a woman who's nursing, um, they're exempt from fasting. Um, when it comes to illness, yes, most people know that if you're ill, um, uh, you are exempted from fasting, but there's, there's more to it. Um, so there is, yes, someone who's ill, and then there is someone who fear, fear, fears that their illness is going to get worse fast they're also exempt from fasting then the third one is someone who fears that their recovery is going to be delayed um, you know if they fast they're also exempt from fasting and then uh, the fourth one is someone who believes that fasting will cause serious illness or death they are discouraged from fasting right so the there are exemptions in our faith when it comes to fasting and most of us think about illness as a physical illness but that includes mental illness as well and, and many people don't know that. Yeah. And it's it's one of the most common questions that I get when I have my Muslim patients is like, well, uh, especially things like eating disorders. And we'll, we'll jump into eating disorders, I think, a little bit later. But uh, that's one of the most common ones that we see with depression stuff. You know, we see things that happen in, you know, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. Like we know that there's so much that's tied to sleep, right? And the sleep-wake cycles. And we know the the one thing I think that people who are able-minded, who are able-bodied, who are able to fast and go through Ramadan fasting, like the one kind of 
common complaint that they'll say is like, oh, my sleep schedule is destroyed, right? Because we're waking up before sunset to have a meal and then we're just trying to stay awake and do our things during the day. And then we try to break our fast at sunset and then we have extra prayers that are there in the evening time a little bit later. So naturally, and, in, 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 you know, of course, this it moves through the year. It goes back 11 days per year. It's based on the lunar calendar versus the solar calendar. So during the summertime, right, you know, a few, few years ago was more during the summertime. We're, we're kind of getting into that springtime now, which is a lot easier than when it's in the middle of July and August. Those days are 14-something hours, right, versus, and then wintertime, it's eight-hour fast. So people whose, like, depression gets really bad when sleep gets thrown off. Bipolar disorder can get absolutely triggered and we can have a manic episode triggered by these things. Like, you know, are we going to tell these people like, hey, you have to abide by them? No, right? That's that's not part of the deal. Right. And unfortunately, the most Muslims don't have that information and their family members might tell them, no, this is something you have to do. And they're, they're struggling. You know, I was uh, researching and I was on Reddit because I think that's a great place to hear what someone might think or say because they're able to say anonymously and I, um, and I came across a lot of different posts from Muslims talking about how they're struggling with mental illness and um, you know some of them have been discouraged from taking medication in Ramadan or outside of it because they're like being told that you need to just be able to do this yourself or your mind is not strong enough or you know a multitude of reasons that are not helpful um, and that it, it leads a person to feeling so uh, so much worse Yeah, we have like the whole idea of pill shaming within the community first and foremost, but then it like becomes this extra kind of burden almost, it seems like during during Ramadan, because like you'll hear all people will be, well, if you just pray and if you just fast, then this will take care of that, right? Like, and right. is that true or not true? <laughs> right, right. And, you know, if you're saying this, someone commented on one of my posts when I was talking about fasting and, um, you know, having exemption from fasting. And the person was like, wait a second, you know, I've always heard that um, with the zikr of Allah, that's how hearts find peace, right? And that fasting is supposed to be helpful for mental health. And yes, it can be helpful for a lot of people. And then in some cases, it's, it's um, it impacts us negatively. And there is, you know, that's literally why there are these exemptions, right? That Allah knows and understands the human like behavior and our psyche he knows that we're going to be challenged in ways and he says he does not intend uh, hardship on us he intends ease for us right but people it seems like sometimes they don't focus on that part they kind of take you know the the commandment for fasting over everything else um and uh, I, I did want to mention here and uh, he said i came across about um you know allah said that he loves these concessions to be accepted just as he hates for acts of disobedience to be and I think knowing that is very powerful because Allah talks about the seriousness and validity of having these exemptions and he places that for a reason. But unfortunately, people, people don't give people that same exemption. Yeah. Where do you think, like, where do you think this kind of comes from, this aspect of people not creating the space for this or trying to, like, eliminate almost these exceptions? Where is that coming from? I think there's so many of that can grow out from or grow from. Um, 
one is lack of awareness. You know, what is mental health really? Um, when we talk about the word mental health, everybody has mental health, but not everybody has mental illness. But, you know, even that itself is like the concept of mental health is, you know, is this jinn possession? And, um, does this mean you're a bad Muslim? You know, um, if I go to social gatherings, you know, people will ask me what do you do for a living? And I tell them I'm a mental health therapist. And some people will say, oh, that's great. We need more of that in our community. And then other people say, hold on, you know, wait, you're a therapist. Um, do you see white people? Well, you probably see white people. Or, oh, you probably see crazy people. And I tell them, no, I see people like me and you. Because oftentimes that's literally who I see. It's it's anybody, you know, it could be anybody. Um, but there's this idea of, you know, that it has to be someone who might be, um, have severe intense disability or intellectual disabilities, that that's the kind of person I'm recommending for therapy or that's what mental illness is. And it's so much more than that. Um, another reason could be, you know, in a family, if there, if someone has experienced personal trauma of losing someone, someone to suicide, let's say, um, and they've kept that silent. You know, they've they've kept themselves from being able to engage in a healing journey. Um, when we create that silence, it doesn't allow space for us to learn how to manage that. What we can do um, to help somebody else who's in that situation. So I guess, you know, for example, let's say there's a guy named Akbar, right? Akbar, um, Akbar's uncle passed away um, from suicide before Akbar was even born. And Akbar grows up and he, you know, he experiences suicidal ideation himself. He has thoughts of suicide or not wanting to be around. Um, and he's confused. His family, if they've kept things silent, chances are they, they never got the proper resources or didn't know how to help. So now Akbar is in pain. Um, maybe he opens up to his family about it. Oftentimes people don't even say that out loud, right? But let's say he opens up to his family about it. His family has no idea how to help him. And the, the cycle continues, the dysfunction continues. And uh, it prevents people from being able to, to go on a recovery journey and get help. Yeah, and I think it's it's important because there is so much of this, how do we say it? Like, you know, this idea of like, um, family pride and family kind of like, you know, the, is it the right, the honor of the family that's there where it's like, you know, oh my God, these things happen. So let's be quiet about it and hush it up as much as possible. Like, I know there are people who have plenty of people who have like, you know, our friends and stuff who have siblings or family members or cousins, whoever, and whatever it is who have like, again, like developmental disabilities or other stuff. And it's like, oh, I never even knew this until, you like directly asked me a question about it and I was like, oh, I've, you, I've known you for 10 years and I didn't know that you have like a brother with something or other. And it's like, where is this kind of coming from? And it's, it is this aspect where like, there's almost this element of shame that comes again, like we were talking about before of like, I, mean, I can't even talk about this person who's my brother because they have autism or something else like that. Right. Yeah. And you're so right. My brother has autism. So I, I resonate with that. Um, earlier on when he was diagnosed, there was a lot of, or shame of how to kind of deal with this in the family and it took a lot of education to come to a place of you know this is something that happens to people and it is a challenge and how can we be supportive of of our loved one right um thankfully there are there are more communities now there there you know there's some work around that um uh, that's creating healthy open dialogue and allowing families to have resources and i think that's making a huge difference in people being able to address it in a healthy way and remove that shame yeah, which I think is like, you know, we can't 
hide these things anymore because I think oh, it's, it's just not possible. So good. I'm glad to hear that there's support. And, all, and, and again, like we have, again, we have friends who have like kiddos with autism, really, really severe autism. And it's just like, it's, it's really good to see when the community comes together and it's like, we're not going to put this kid and ship them away. Right. Like we, we may have done generations ago and maybe not even generations ago, like currently happening, I'm sure. But like stuff that you were like, hey, we're going to embrace this kiddo and we're going to help him out and be there and support mom and dad and all that stuff. So I'm glad to see that there's movement with that, at least. So with this kind of aspect of it, so we have this this kind of other kind of unique, almost unique, I want to say South Asian and then like Muslim kind of concept of like Giba, which is, you know, gossip and and backbiting and it's you know in islam it's considered one of the highest sins i think it's like the second highest sin that's out there besides like from shirk besides like saying another person is god essentially it's so it's an it's an an idea of how important this is right not talking about each other not backbiting we have this like with with fasting right when people don't fast for whatever reason it's almost that gossip the questions like why isn't so-and-so fasting what's going on with them is something all right with them or like have they gone away from the religion are they out like all these things that come about that so let's talk about that a little bit that whole concept of that right right i think there's a lot of fear in the community of judgment of you know for healthy people if we open up about about our mental health um you know people might think oh it's because i'm not praying enough or maybe because a less punishing me because I'm such a messed up person, or you know, what if this becomes a reason that I don't get married, right? Or what if people think that I'm possessed by a jinn? And I would have liked to think that that one isn't as common anymore, but unfortunately, <laughs> that that misconceptions is very much alive, um, you know, and that is something that people still believe in. Um, and I think that fear of what other people might think it, it creates this, uh, you know, more silence and more shame, you know. And you said. You know, people engage in Liba, and I think a lot of us think about Liba as spreading false information about people. So Liba is anything that you might say about someone that if they heard it, they would not like that, right? Um, it would upset them to hear something like that. So it could literally be anything about them. It could be the truth, but that is also included in Liba, right? Um, and I think we take it so lightly that we're just storytelling. Oh, I'm just talking. You know, I'm just sharing something funny, like a funny thing that happened, or, oh, I was worried about them, and so I said it. But if that person is not ready to have that shared, if they don't want that to happen, then it is not our place to, to speak about that, right? That's someone, someone else's journey, and I think we have to be respectful of that. And like you said, it is one of the major sins in Islam and something we're definitely going to be asked about in the next life. But in this life, like I said, it creates a lot of fear um, in people. So if you leave a gathering where Liba was taking place, you're going to be careful and, and you know cautious. You're going to worry that, okay, these people are talking about this. Maybe they're my friends, but now I'm worried that they're going to say something that I've shared with them in confidence with other people, right? So um, that ultimately then leads to people not seeking help um, because if this conversation is happening about someone's mental health or what that means, and you know, there's input or misinformation out there too, um, and that can lead people to feeling like this is not a valid enough reason for me to have a mental illness or to not fast. And, and that's very problematic. Yeah, and I think it was really important what you're saying about not seeking help, right? Because, you know, 
I've had people unprompted, of course, I'm sure you have as well, like tell you stuff and you're like, whoa, this, I'm, we're just trying to hang out. We're, no, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to like, yes. we're just trying to, I always joke around like I was sitting around with a buddy and we we're trying to watch football and then all of a sudden he starts telling me about like, you know, childhood abuse that was going on. And I was like, whoa, I'm, man, we're, I'm just trying to watch the game with you, right? Yeah, totally. um, yes. But that aspect of like, you know, people, you know, people talk, right? People always are going to say something and you want to be careful about, being scared of you know if you betray that trust or anybody else betrays that trust and starts running their mouth about stuff and then why would they want to trust anybody else why would they want to kind of go and seek professional help if this is what their experience has been as they've told somebody and then that person's told somebody else about it so it causes a lot of issues and again it kind of comes back to that you know the whole idea of mental health in in the community of like this is this tabooish kind of topic and you should be quote unquote praying harder to get rid of this stuff. And then I was like, Oh my God, Salman is seeing a psychiatrist and what, what, how terrible, what bad stuff it must be up to if he has to go and see a psychiatrist or a therapist and stuff like that. So it's trouble. It is very much so. And you know, as we were talking about this even reminds me of um, people saying things like, Oh, that's so ADD or, Oh, I'm so OCD when I do this or, Oh, that person was, you know, they were upset, they're so bipolar. And I think we have to be careful, um, you know, when we use these kind of terms to describe um, average common things yeah. happening. Um, because one, it is a stigmatized way to explain someone's behavior um, when we're using it in that context. And then two, it reinforces like the misconception of what, what these illnesses are, and then it minimizes the intensity of what someone else might be experiencing. And if someone ex- experiences that and they hear it, of course it's problematic. You know? um, Prior to Ramadan, um, I was at a coffee shop with one of my friends who, who does have ADHD. And on the table next to us, there was a conversation happening, and one of the uh, ladies on the table said, oh, ADD much? And both me and my friend, we look at each other and we're like, oh, gosh, no. <laughs> you know, <laughs> But it's so common. It's so right. common and really, um, yeah, it's a disservice. It's, it's kind of that double-edged sword of like the mental health awareness. I was going to say is like, we've, we did such a good job of bringing mental health awareness and bringing it out there that now again, these, these diagnoses, these serious diagnoses have become, you know, just part of our normal everyday language and they've lost meaning almost in a way. And then, and then it kind of gets weaponized against us or, yeah. In the notes we had talked, we had written something about spiritual bypassing in Ramadan and outside Ramadan. Talk about that a little bit. What what does that mean? Yeah, um, I think that is quite common, and it's related to something you know, said earlier that you know people might tell us, um, you know, don't be depressed, just pray, or you have so much to be grateful for. Why are you having thoughts of suicide? You know, and and we can tell ourselves these things, um, and other people can tell us these things too. And usually, it comes from us hearing these things from other people. That I shouldn't be feeling this way. You know, I shouldn't be thinking about all the children in the world that don't have what I have. And I think over time, that can be quite harmful for us. And when people say that to us, they might you know, be coming from a well-intentioned place, but, but doing that is, is very problematic. You know, um, telling someone that uh, prayer is going to resolve their anxiety or depression and it not working out for them, um, it not only creates more anxiety and more frustration that but it also can lead to people feeling disconnected from their faith and I've seen that happen um, in my clients or you know just people in the community 
um, we're attaching someone's mental health to their acts of worship or their connection to Allah. And if someone is not receiving the same level of um, you know, resolution that they were seeking through that, um, yeah, it can reinforce that idea of you know, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm a bad person. Maybe God is forsaking me. And so now, even though I'm trying to get close to him, it's not working. Or people can get angry or upset with, with God. You know, why is he doing this to me? I'm trying. Um, I tried this. I was told this is this is the solution. And I tried it. And it doesn't work. So is, you know, why is, why is God doing this? Or does he not care about me? And if he doesn't, like, okay, then I, you know, I don't want it. And that happens. Unfortunately, that happens to quite a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Going to like the topic of mental health in Islam a bit more too and how we approach it, like is seeking mental health treatment in Islam a thing that's there or not? Is it should we just should we just be praying more and fasting more? I think there was, I can't remember the exact term, um, maybe you can help me with it um, if it comes to you, but like one of the things I that I like about the religion, right, that it's, is that, you know, the religion was started, what, 1,400, 1,500 years ago, um, and now we're in the 21st century, right? So there was this idea of we always have to keep up with the times and what's available to us, Right. You know, there are people who are on the extreme ends will say things like, "Well, Prozac wasn't there 1,500 years ago, so it's not it's not allowed in Islam." Like, it's like, no, 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 no. You, you're making a little bit of a, a a leap there to kind of to kind of say these things. It's like, you know, if if cars were allowed, or, I mean, if cars were around back then, like, would they have been walking around or you know using camels and stuff to get around? No, of course not. Or like, we we're allowed to progress with the times. Um, Right. And we're allowed to kind of keep up with the the treatment options and healthcare that are available to us, right? Like again, modern surgery wasn't a thing that was there. It's that like we're going to prevent us from getting these these treatments because this wasn't there, and you know, fifteen hundred years ago, of course not. Right, right, totally. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, you know, there's there is a lot of uh, misinformation about this, and um, one resource I definitely wanted to mention here was Doctor. From Stanford University and the Filial Center and the Keene Institute, they're doing a lot of great work um, when it comes to spreading information about mental health in Islam. Um, you know, treatment for this has existed for a very long time, and they do uh, 
they, they bring in lesson professionals to talk about that, about Islamic history and how mental health treatment was a, a big part of that. Um, and it's existed for a long time, but we've lost track of that. And I think if we go back to that and we see, okay, hold on a second, there was the concept of treating people with antidepressants even at that time. Um, I wouldn't know what chemicals or substances they use, uh, medication they use for, for that. Um, but, you know, I would definitely encourage people to check those resources out to, to learn more. Yeah. And then, like, even just in general part of mental health, um, spirituality and faith, they're a part of it, correct? Like, that's something that we talk about and discuss, right? Right, right, totally. Um, yeah, I, I, that's something we definitely talk about in therapy. Um, you know, I, I do believe that spirituality and faith are part of our mental health and they're impactful in our mental health in a monumental way. Are they all of it? Are they the you know, only solution? No, uh, but they're definitely a part of it. So we don't want to ignore that. Um, you know, it, uh, our spirituality, our connection to Allah can be incredibly impactful and positive um, when we come from a holistic perspective and, you know, keep that into account as we're getting treatment. Yeah. We talked about a little bit before about like how some of like the sleep stuff can throw off you know, especially coming back to Ramadan, sleep can get thrown off and how that can have an impact on mental health and, you know, depression, bipolar, all that stuff. Um, let's talk about a little bit more about like eating disorders, because that's, I think, one of the ones that gets a lot of the attention a little bit more during Ramadan, because there are people who will be like, well, fasting, you know, like, isn't that making eating disorders worse? Isn't that like making... You know, because because so much so much of the the gross outside kind of attention comes to the eating and the drinking aspect of things. So, let's talk about that a little bit. Like, how do we how do we deal with that, and and you know, with that as a whole? Right, you're right. Um, just like you said, sleep uh, sleep and wake cycles impact uh, bipolar disorders and depression. Um, eating patterns in Ramadan can definitely have an impact you know, in people who have eating disorders. So. Know, some of the practices, of course, were refraining from eating for a very long time, um, you know, and when we do eat, a lot of us might binge eat at iftar or subur to make up for the loss of um, having nutrients throughout the day. And those things can reinforce um, some of the disordered eating patterns that we see in people. Um, so it definitely is a reality and I think something that can easily go unchecked. Um, and a lot of times people might not even realize that they're doing it for that reason. Right, or loved ones might not be able to catch it because Ramadan is almost like a perfect opportunity for someone who has an eating disorder. And people who have eating disorders definitely talk about that, that they might um, you know, look forward to Ramadan in a way that you know, I, I'm going to get to practice these things that are important to me uh, and reinforce my eating disorder. And because everybody else is doing it, it's, it goes in check. Yeah, it's a way to kind of hide right out there in the open in a way. I know and it's like um and it's it's one of the things with eating disorders that makes it really hard to kind of treat I think too from like a provider point of view is that it becomes so much of somebody's identity right and they have so much comfort that comes from the eating disorder almost um and again I'm just generalizing a little bit um but there's it's so hard to kind of give up it's really you know that aspect of I have patients where we we help the depression and then the eating gets better, then it's like, no, I don't 
want it to get better. I don't want to lose this aspect. This is the only thing that's brings brought me some comfort to an extent. So it's, it's this push and pull that comes and kind of like we're saying is it's, we're hiding out in the open of being able to have that there, which makes it harder for sure. Right. Right. And it's like what you said, um, eating disorders and other mental illnesses can definitely become a part of our identity and something we hold on to. Although yes, we can identify that these things are impacting us in a negative way, but sometimes because that is, has been our norm for such a long time, it's scary to do something different. It's scary to see the possibility of something else, right? Um, we, in some ways, sometimes can be very protective of our illness and, and hold on to those same patterns. Yeah. What are some ways that people can get some help, I guess? How can they prepare for it or when this is kind of coming up so we know that when Ramadan is on the calendar and how do we deal with that? Preparation is always easier and more effective than kind of recovery or trying to clean things up afterwards. So right, yeah, being proactive is yeah. more helpful than being reactive. Yeah. How can we, you know, like we're both Muslim mental health professionals, like what can we do or what can, you know, the communities do as a whole to kind of have that discussion a little bit more, to kind of break down the stigma so that we're not just, you know, hiding behind closed doors and that we're, we're really busting down the doors and having these conversations out in, in public and in general. Right. I, I think what we're doing right now is really great, though, doing more of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a great place to be, but also, you know, within our communities, I know most Muslims, they want to seek um, advice about how to live life from, from an imam or through the masjid. Um, that's something Muslims very much value, that they would rather seek mental health support from the imam or someone at the masjid, a faith leader, right? So I think being able to host um, uh, 
community events at different masjid uh, or community centers where we bring in imams and also licensed professionals to talk about mental health in a healthy way because then we're able to get information from reputable sources, information that is accurate. It's not, you know, um, coming from, uh, you know, a stigmatized place. It's talking about mental health in a compassionate way. And when we do that, naturally those conversations start trickling down into our homes and we're talking about things, you know, in, in, in a healthy in a healthy manner. And when we do that, in our houses and it makes a huge difference for the community in general yeah because i know that you know not talking about something doesn't make it not happen right you know it's one of those things that you know people will seek something out mm-hmm. and they're going to find out they're going to go on of course what's available to them what's social media and right. reddits and again like they have there's there's absolutely parts of those communities which are helpful but I think, you know, I always quote this kind of paper that came out with saying that like 90% of the mental health information that was on like something like TikTok is false, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's wrong. It's, it's misinformation. And would you rather be getting your information from TikTok or would you rather be getting it from people who do this for a living and know what they're talking about? Right. Totally. You're so right about that. You know, it, it reminds me of um, when I was younger um, and I first heard about gin, I was so scared gosh, I better never have an encounter with a jinn. What am I going to do if that happens? But when I started learning about jinn through khutbahs and from reputable sources, the fear started going away, right? The, the misconceptions started disappearing. I knew what I needed to do if I were in that situation or what to do to prevent myself from ever being in that situation. So it's like what you said. It's not, you know, if you don't talk about it, it's not like it, it doesn't exist. It still exists. It's about how you have healthy conversations surrounding it. And when you do have healthy conversations, it's empowering for people. It helps them see that they have options, that there are ways to seek uh, positive help and support. Yeah. How can families and communities kind of like, what can they do to come together to like support somebody's mental health? So if we know that like somebody's dealing with whatever, what can we do to help them out instead of just kind of pushing them away in, in the corner? that have support from their families and the people who don't have support. And we can see the difference it makes, you know, one compares to the other in the person's recovery process. So as a family member or a friend, um, one of the first things that we can do is get educated, you know, know the risk factors that could put your loved one's mental health at risk in Ramadan or in general, and then know their warning signs because everybody's different. Know the warning signs of their, you know, of their mental health decline. Um, and you might ask them, you know, tell me how you would be able to tell that things are not working out for you or that you need extra support. Or noticing behaviors like, you know, are they not texting me back? Are they more quiet when they're hanging out with me? Um, you know, are they spending a lot of time sleeping? And, you know, when people are experiencing depression, they are very fatigued. Even if they sleep at night, they don't feel rested. They spend lots and lots of time taking naps. So if that's happening, that's something to know. Um, and then the second one is to know how to support them, know what to say and what not to say. You know, refrain from saying things like you're being dramatic or you need to just pray and everything's going to be okay or think about the kids and, you know, wherever and you have so much more than that. Try to say things like I'm here for you, you know, or how can I support you? What can I do? Or if, if you're not ready to talk, it's okay. Let's just hang out, you know, and when you're ready to talk, I'm here. Um, there's a difference between the two, right? One is compassionate and allows space. For the person to be able to say like okay i have the support right and then the other one is saying no you're not allowed to feel this way when your feelings wrong 
Um, yeah, and we can be there through our actions. Like I said, people who are experiencing depression, they might not have the energy to do things. So offer to do their groceries or clean up or drive them to their appointments, things like that. Yeah, I think, you know, again, it's really important when we say things like, hey, I'm, I'm here for you, right? And it may seem like a nothing from the person who's saying that. It may not seem like it's much, but it actually, it means a lot from the person who's receiving that to kind of hear that, like, they're not alone because, you know, so much of mental illness and so much of these disorders is the idea of, you know, depression, anxiety, lie to us and say, like, you're alone. You're the only one who's dealing with this thing and nobody cares about you and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when you hear that from somebody else saying like, hey, I, you want to just sit down together? You want to just hang out? You want to like grab something to drink or eat or whatever? Makes a huge difference. Oh, yeah, for sure. It really does. And then, so that's families and like community. But what about like faith leaders? I know we, we touched upon it a little bit before, but like what can area moms and Mulvies and everybody else that, that's out there, what can they do to help support the communities and beyond? Maybe even going a step further, talking about uh, some of the other mental illnesses that we really don't talk about, focus on anxiety and depression. What about having bipolar disorder? What about talking about eating disorders like Yugoslavia's, right? What about um, talking about personality disorders or toxic um, family traits? All things that impact people's mental health. Those are things that we don't necessarily hear as much in, in the mushroom, right? But being able to have conversations uh, around that and yes, being collaborative with therapists or you know licensed mental health professionals bringing them in to have a collaborative conversation about this or even having support groups at the masjid oh my gosh how incredible would that be <laughs> if we were to do that right um and i know therapists who are willing to bring in moms if that's what their client needs they're willing to bring in moms into the therapy session um, as long as you sign a release of information form that's something you can totally do if that's what you need in therapy yeah Cool. We had a couple, I think we had a couple questions on Twitter that I threw out there before. So, we'll, we'll, so Sana Shamim, she's somebody, you know, following for a little bit, getting psychiatry, going to psychiatry. I'm like, yes, we need more psychiatrists, Muslim psychiatrists. So she had asked a couple questions. One was like, thoughts on approaches to people that say depression and suicidality is a lack of faith. We, we talked about it a little bit, but something maybe that to expand upon a little bit more specific. Yeah, I think, as we said earlier, we have to be careful about what that does to people. You know, it, it creates a lack of safety and being able to, one, open up to that person. You know, um, it, sure, it may be coming from a well-intentioned place, but because you're saying something that um, that doesn't allow any curiosity in that conversation, right? You're saying, oh, it's definitely this. It's because you have lack of faith. It, it, it stigmatizes the person, right? It makes them feel worse about themselves. And they're less likely to reach out to you for help again. Um, you know, they're not going to tell you about it, but they tell the therapist. I definitely get to hear about it, you know. And I've, I've, I've seen this happen for Muslims, but also people of other faiths. You know, um, I have Christian clients who say that their family members told them to read the Bible. And, oh, if you just read the Bible and not, you just believe in God. Or if you just prayed for this to go away, it would. Right? Um, and then when it doesn't, it leads them to feel further away or from you and also a lot and I don't I don't know if we want to do that to people yeah and it, it's it's so again like invalidating like we say when we we do, we do these things and 
or when people say these things and then again like it, it ruins these potential relationships again like with religion with faith that can be there like why hasn't god saved me because i've done my prayers and i've fasted and i should be better by now and like i don't need to take the medicine but here i am still doing this stuff and it's again it it, it brings people away from it um so it's trouble it's trouble so it's like it's a part of it right we i always talk about the biopsychosocial model and there's a lot of people who are pushing for like another another s there which is spirituality um and that you know, again doesn't mean like strict like faith like catholicism islam buddhism buddhism whatever it can be anything belief in anything so yeah and then one of the other kind of populations that we don't talk about a lot in muslims and islam is like people with substance disorders right what's been your experience with that or have you had much experience with that yeah um yeah there's there is uh so much that's such a taboo topic i think um you know one of the one of the ones in the mental health field and being being a muslim that is one of the least commonly talked about topics um there is just this blanket oh we shouldn't do that muslims don't do that and so it doesn't happen you know i've had people say that to me um i'm like what surprised you know um and it doesn't allow space for anything healthy so the person is kind of stuck in this pattern of using substances and they keep going back to that because they don't really have alternative ways to cope um there isn't safety in the community to be able to talk about that but i you know even if we we look at that from a faith-based perspective um it reminds me you know if you let's say you are someone who's using substances and you're trying to work on this in, in Ramadan or outside of Ramadan, you're trying to take steps to get closer to Allah. Um, something I'm reminded of is, um, you know, Allah saying that He, He is to us part His slaves as we perceive Him to be. Um, you know, if we come to Him by the length of a hand, He comes to us by the length of an arm. And if we if we walk towards Him, um, He comes to us running. So each step that you take to get closer to Allah, He will meet you at that place and even more. And there's no space for that in the community, but Allah does create space for that, right? There's so much mercy in our faith, but I think we miss that as community members, as Muslims, we miss that when we talk about, oh, this is what's gonna happen to you, you know, people who use substances, this is the punishment for it. And we focus on the punishment rather than the merciful way to get that same goal. You know, it's like what we talked about before, you know, the absolutism versus having a healthy perspective in, in how we see faith and how we see Allah, really. Yeah. I think it's one of those things a lot of people in the community kind of understand is that, like, you know, Islam as a whole, like, you know, we're not supposed to be drinking alcohol and we're not supposed to be using drugs. And, you know, even when I went into the field of, like, you know, I'm going to focus on a lot of my work is on substance use, there was, like, even people were like, why, why are you doing this? Like, these people aren't worth your help. You know, like, unfortunately, we're hearing these things and it's like, no, of course they're still worth our help and then they're like well i'm sure you know what see any muslim people who come to you and i was like of course i do i was like <laughs> i was like you better believe yeah. that i see muslims <laughs> yes. who have problems with drinking and muslims who have problem with with you know using cannabis and or other substances like it happens and i think there's when i work with those patients and i come from a point of like you know i almost like don't even bring religion into it right like we, do, we don't even you know we come from a non-judgmental point of view you see that breath of relief right that sigh of relief that comes from there like 
oh good I can like say this I can like share this with you and you're not gonna like give me the well you're going to hell now you understand this because yeah. no of course not like why 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 would anybody kind of say that or if they get it from if they might go to family members you know religious places they might get that harder kind of harsher kind of approach where again why would they seek help from somebody who's going to tell them well you're just going to hell so why even try right right totally right about that um and i've seen that with my clients you know um they might come and tell me my parents said this to me or on the opposite my parents tell me i can use because they don't know how to help me right and i get so upset they might not say it in specific words but i've seen this happen in families because there isn't healthy conversation about how to address this in, in, in our faith or in the community that people don't know what to do parents will say okay well i'd rather you just smoke marijuana because I don't I don't want to hear your anger it's too much for me to handle right it's better for me to just give you weed than for me to cope with this so so yeah we've I've seen you know both sides of that yeah it's a tricky one but it's something that I think hopefully again that we're moving towards understanding and acceptance that like again this is part of the culture as much as we don't want to talk about it so Wrapping up a bit, I know we want to be respectful of everybody's time. We have to get ready for iftar and a few hours and <laughs> all that it's stuff. It's a ways but, away from me, but I think you're yeah. in a different time zone. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. But um, what is, I always ask everybody like as a wrap up, like what is your kind of self-care? What, how do you take care of yourself? That's such a great question. I am a very strong proponent of self-care. Um, just because as a therapist, you know, I think my education was very much drilled about to it's hard to pour from an empty cup and it really is um, and I value being a good therapist and I value being um, supportive of my clients and I value also being there for my family so it's very important for me to maintain the basics like what we talked about having enough rest um, you know feeding my body right trying to get exercise although that one I'm not that great at anymore um, <laughs> try to be but <laughs> you we, know, try, we try we try we try, we try. exactly exactly but spending time with family or friends um, you know when I feel depleted let's say I can't make it out for like a you know three four hour hangout maybe I can be there for an hour so I try to do that um, I love to travel that's something again maybe not as manageable you know or feasible all the time to do because life is life um, but you know being out in nature if I can't travel being out in nature that's something that really fills my own cup so I definitely try to practice these things so I can be present in my life I notice the difference it makes for myself and especially um, after becoming a mom um, it's been even more important for me to practice myself awesome awesome yeah and I think that's it's an important thing where it's like we all have our own self-cares right we all we have to take care of ourselves especially you know the people who are like yourself, myself, people are the healers. We're supposed to be the healers, right? We try to be the healers aren't <laughs> when we're doing some stuff, but we we have to take care of ourselves. So, well, any, how can we help people who are interested in following you, learning more about you and kind of what you're putting out there? How can people come along your journey with you? Totally. Um, people can find me on social media. I'm on Instagram, TikTok. My handle is mental health with Maliha. Um, so I talk about different topics related to mental health, and I try to gear them towards uh, the South Asian and Muslim communities. Um, so yeah, if people want to check that out, that's uh, that's there. All right. Well, thank you so much. I know this was like a topic that I think we both wanted to kind of talk about and have a discussion about it. So hopefully, we got everything that we wanted out of this. So and I hopefully people will pick up something or other. So thank you again sure. so much. I appreciate it.